I'm going to continue this morning um, on our series called The Way of Love. And uh, as you know, we're in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And it's a lengthy portion this morning. I'm just going to make five points out of this portion. Five simple things that Paul encourages this church with. And as you know, we've been seeing that the Corinthian church was a very gifted church. It was a very... Um, Busy church full of um, uh, different kinds of people. Paul planted this church after he had come from Athens. He planted this church into Corinth, which was a difficult situation for him. And it was a difficult city in many ways. But he plants this church. There's an ecclesia. There's a called out group of people that belong to the Lord Jesus. And they are part of this church. And they are very gifted. But unfortunately, they are also have many problems. And so Paul hears about these problems from a lady called Chloe, who's a businesswoman. She travels between Corinth and Athens, uh, Ephesus and Corinth. And uh, on one of her trips, uh, she starts to hear their problems in the church in Corinth. It's only three years old, this church. And so she tells Paul, and he, start, he writes back with five things that he addresses the church with. And we saw after his greeting, after his commendation of the grace of God in these people's lives, he starts to address the first problem, which is division in the church. And basically, the church has started to divide itself and start, there are groups in the church cheerleading for different leaders and different preachers. And I, I tried to unpack that for you a couple of weeks ago and just say that's never helpful. Paul then appeals to the gospel and he starts whenever there's a problem in this letter he appeals to the gospel and then he says in light of the gospel change how you live because this is what the gospel has brought for us and so basically last week I said to you basically Paul is challenged starts to challenge them and he says for all of you that are saved for all of you that believe in the Lord Jesus you are one in the Lord Jesus please show it in how you treat each other that was the basic thing that I said last week. And now, here Paul continues to um, appeal to the gospel in what he says um, here in this portion. And I'm going to read verse 18 to verse 31. Uh, you can follow me on, on your phone or it will come up behind. It's, this is a beautiful portion. It says here, For the message of the cross, now he's beginning to explain is beginning to explain the gospel in terms of what it's done for them. And he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Yes. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were 
wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Anyone feel weak? Anyone feel lowly? Anyone feel like you are the small person in the, in the city? Anyone feel like that? No? Just me? Because I feel like that often. I feel like the small person, the insignificant one. What am I doing with my life? Plowing away, doing some stuff. And yet God says, I chose you. The foolish one, the weak one, the despised one, the one at the end of the queue. I chose you, and I chose you to show my wisdom. Come on. This should encourage every one of you. This is such good news. This is the gospel. This is what God promises to do for every single one of us. Let me not get ahead of myself. <laughs> and he says in verse 28, He chose the lonely things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one might boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Here is my first very simple point, verse 18, first thing that Paul wants us to understand. He says, this is his main point that he unpacks now in the other four points that I'm going to make. The first thing he wants us to understand, he says, the message of the gospel, preaching of the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us that are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? This is his main point. So, Remember he said in verse 17 last week that we could actually share the gospel, preach the gospel in a way that robs it of its power. If we try and get too clever, if we rely on philosophy and worldly wisdom, we can preach the gospel in a way that it's robbed of its power. And he says, I don't do that. I simply preach to you plainly. I preach the cross of Christ so that you might know the power of Christ in your life that can transform you. That's what Paul says. And so this is what he's unpacking here in this idea. The message of the cross, the preaching of the gospel, refers to the basic, the bare facts of the Christian story. That's what he means when he uses that phrase. And he's saying the bare facts of the Christian story seem to be foolishness to many people and are most unusual. All right? That's what Paul is saying. And they include things like Christians believe in the incarnation that the God of the universe incarnated himself into a human being. And he came and lived a perfect life amongst ordinary people. And he did not sin. He, he, that came about through his birth through a virgin. And after that, he died and he rose again. These things seem foolishness to those that are preaching. And they are still foolishness to many today. Because Paul says the Greek way of thinking which was broad, broadly rationalistic. It liked to have logic and explain everything in terms of reason. It was the highest form of wisdom for the Greeks. We still in the West prize that kind of thinking above all. We like to be rationalistic. We like to be logical. We like to be scientific. We appeal to those things. And so for many, the message of the cross, the preaching of the cross is still foolishness. Foolishness. 
How can you believe that someone can die for you and take away your sin? That's the tone of our Western culture. This message is foolishness. And yet Paul says, to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. You want power in your life? You want power to forgive? Someone once said, I think it was C.S. Lewis, said this, forgiveness seems like such a good idea until you have to forgive somebody. Isn't that true? Forgiveness is hard if you're trying to do it yourself, but by the power of the Spirit, it is possible. Anyone want to overcome feelings of insecurity? Know the power of the cross in your life. There is one who can help you overcome all your feelings of insecurity, all your fear about the future. It comes through the power of the cross. The message of the cross is life and power to those that are being saved, that believe it by faith. You want power in your life? Look to the cross of Jesus. That's the source of power. That's what Paul is saying. So it's a strange message. It's regarded as foolishness by those that think they are worldly wise. But to those that trust the message and trust the power of the cross, Paul says, it is the actual power of God released in your life to transform you. And that is good news. And so I put it to you this morning that actually preaching the cross is the message of the gospel. It's not preaching a high moral standard of living. We don't preach legalism. That's not the gospel. Living by rules is not the gospel. Christians saying this is how you must behave is not the gospel. Preaching God as a universal father is not the gospel. Preaching the, the brotherhood of man is not the gospel. This is the gospel that the cross of Christ releases power into your life as you believe it by faith. That is the message of the gospel. We have no other message. We preach Jesus, Christ crucified, and that's the message of the cross. And so here, do you notice the verb here? For those are being saved and for those that are perishing, Paul is saying you're either moving in one of those two directions. You're either being saved or you're moving towards perishing. You choose. You look to the cross and be saved. Amen? And so Paul says then, in verse 19, the second point I want to make, he shows how the wisdom of the world has actually failed. And he says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Through the foolishness of what was preached. This foolish, seemingly foolish message is the thing that actually saves you and brings life to you. And he quotes, Paul is actually quoting Isaiah 29 here at the beginning. Verse 14. It says this, Isaiah 29, 14. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish the, intelligent, uh, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. What Paul is saying is in spiritual matters, in spiritual things, God opposes earthly wisdom and philosophy and will not bow down before it. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, where's the wise person? In other words, in the light of Isaiah, where's the philosopher? Where's the wise person? Where is 
the one who would stand in opposition to God, Paul says, they have been made nothing. In the light of what God has done for us, he has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. And so he's basically saying, there's no wise man, there's no teacher of the law, there's no philosopher that can do for you what Jesus has done for you. Can't bring eternal life to you. Can't forgive your sin. Maybe philosophy can show you a couple of things that are wise, but philosophy does not bring life to you. That's what Paul's whole thing is. You want life, you want spiritual life, it doesn't come by thinking. It comes by being born again, by being renewed. And of course, you can educate yourself, and you must educate yourself, and we must give ourselves to, to learning, absolutely. But that is not what saves you. What saved you is that you were dead inside and could not know God. Your spiritual man was dead, and Jesus came, touched you. Your heart, ah! was born again, and now you can know him. That's what saves you. Not thinking. Jesus saves by the power of his Spirit. And once you are alive on the inside, you begin to know him as a father. And you begin to journey with him. That's such a beautiful thing. So Paul continues and says, The world through its wisdom did not go know God. There's a tendency in our culture to think the smartest people, the brightest people, will know the most about God. And Paul is saying exactly the opposite. You might get some earthly contentment or happiness uh, through um, learning and philosophy, but it never brings the true knowledge of God. And it's significant that often the most educated people have the least love for God. Have you noticed that? Some of the great mockers of our generation, Stephen Fry, great mockers of the gospel. Very bright, very intelligent. Don't know the love of God. Don't know the kindness of God. Great minds don't often know God. There are some exceptions. What about Newton? Loved God passionately. But those, those, th those things are rare. Often people think if they get smart, they're going to know much about God. It's not what makes you know much about God. What knows how you get to know God is through the power of the Spirit, by the love of Christ transforming your heart. One day I, I read the story. Albert Einstein had a bunch of students in a classroom, and they, they said they had decided that there was no God. So uh, Einstein said to them, how much... In, in this classroom, how much knowledge do you think we all have? If we all shared our brains, how much knowledge would this classroom have? And so they said, uh, they thought about it for a while, and they said, um, probably 5% of what the world can know in our minds here, we share that together. And the story goes, Einstein said, well, I think you're being generous to yourself. But then he said this, he said, is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't yet know? <laughs> Isn't that a good question? Even the brightest minds don't know everything. We know a fraction, and yet God might still be wanting to reveal himself even to the brightest minds. And so Paul is showing here that God's wisdom is superior in a different category altogether from the wisdom of men. And so he continues in verse 21 and says, through the foolishness of what was preached. And now that this phrase, 
doesn't mean that Paul thought that preaching is foolish. What he was trying to say is that to the wise person, to the worldly person, the preaching of this message seems foolishness. And so God's wisdom is not our human wisdom multiplied to the maximum. Why do I say that? Because Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying, I think in a way that you don't even understand. My wisdom is completely different from your wisdom. And you, you, we, we do not see things even remotely the same way. You think you're wise. My wisdom is completely different. And you can trust in my wisdom. So I'm not, I'm knocking, I'm not knocking learning or education. I'm not at all, and I, I read a lot myself, and Paul is not doing the same thing either. What he is saying is that you can't rely on that for obtaining spiritual wisdom. The spiritual wisdom comes in a spiritual way by God regenerating you and showing you his wisdom as you get to know him. Spurgeon said this, It is certain that a blind man is no judge of color. A deaf man is no judge of sound, and a man who has never been quickened into spiritual life can have no judgment on spiritual things. Amen? Stanley Torfvig, uh, the comedian, went to see uh, Archbishop of Canterbury this week. Did you read about that? And she said, uh, Archbishop, the Anglican Church is out of step with culture. And actually, the Anglican Church must change to get in step with culture and represent the culture that we're part of. I hope the Archbishop said to her, that's absolutely right. The church has never been called to be in step with the culture. This church has always been called to be salt and light and show people Jesus. That's what we're called to do in a loving compassionate way, stand on the gospel with the deep truths of the faith and pass that on to the next generation. And so this is why Paul says, I want, to sh I want you to see this this morning. It, Paul says, it was through the foolishness of what was preached that saves those believe. So salvation centers on Jesus as a person. It involves preaching. It involves doing what I'm doing. It doesn't involve investigating, researching, discussing, preaching the message. Getting it out there, that's what saves people, is through the preaching of the message, of this message, that's what God uses. We're not called to discuss. We are called to think. We're not called to debate the truths of the Scripture. We're called to proclaim the truths of the Scripture. And it says that God takes pleasure in that, in showing His wisdom above our earthly wisdom. It pleases God to save that way. And so it says it's, he, he's happy to do that, and that sometimes offends human wisdom. And this is the point that Paul is making. You know, p p people say, I've heard this said many times, you know, you do need to change the, the gospel because, you know, it was far, fine for Paul in his day. People understood Paul's message in his day. But, but you know, the preaching of the gospel can't be like that anymore. I say, nonsense. We've just read it. Paul said, my message, this message that I preached 
of the gospel and the message of the cross was a stumbling block. It was an offense to the Jewish people, and it was foolishness to the Greeks. They didn't get it then. They didn't get it then. They said, this is foolish. How can you believe this? In the same way that people still don't get it now. Yes? Let's not say it, it applied to Paul then and it, it all needs to change now. No, people still don't get it. It's foolishness to those that are seeking earthly wisdom. And to many people, it is still an offense. It is still a scandal that we would believe this. Come on. This is what the Scripture says. The wisdom, verse 22, my third point. The wisdom of God, though foolishness to the world, always triumphs. And that's what I've just said. Paul, Paul says the Jews demanded a sign and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. An offense, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, but to those whom he has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of and the wisdom of God. So, just to help us understand that, you know, the, the Jews were, were expecting Messiah. They were, that's the sign that they were waiting for. They were expecting a Messiah to come in the way that David had been a king. They were expecting Messiah to come. They weren't looking for the message of a cross to save them. The point is, them wanting deliverance, being delivered. The Jews had been oppressed by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Egyptians, and now by the Romans. They were crying out for deliverance. That's a good thing to be delivered out of those things. The point is, they had rejected God's way of deliverance through the message of a crucified Savior. It wasn't what they were expecting. Uh, there's a, guy, a commentator called Gordon Fee. He says this, uh, their idolatry was that they now had God completely figured out, they simply thought that he would repeat the exodus, but in a glorified, greater, splendid way. Yes, that's what they were expecting. They weren't expecting a crucified Savior. In the same way, the Greeks were looking for wisdom. The highest, the highest, highest uh, pursuit of wisdom for Greek people was academic, intellectual, philo philosophical uh, wisdom. They did not expect the message of the cross. The point for them it's not bad to desire wisdom, but they rejected God's wisdom in the person of Jesus. Yeah, and that was what Paul says. And then verse 23, we preach Christ. I just want to think about this. It says we preach Christ crucified. You know, Christ means Messiah, anointed one. Christos is the great king, is the one who comes in power to deliver. That's what Christos means. Crucified means weak, humiliated, death. Have you ever thought of this great oxymoron that Paul preaches? We preach Christ, the glorious, magnificent Savior of all power, crucified, humiliated. That's the ultimate oxymoron, isn't it? Christ crucified. You might have heard of a Roman guy called Cicero. Anyone heard of him? He was a great statesman. He said this, the cross, it speaks of that which is so shameful, so horrible, it should never be mentioned in polite society. Cicero said that. You can read it for yourself. A Roman said this, this method of execution is so horrible, you shouldn't even speak about it in, in polite society. That's how terrible it is. And so it's really odd, isn't it, that some of us 
wear crosses. I'm not against wearing a cross, but it's like, it's celebrating a method of death. It's, it's like um, wearing an electric chair on a necklace or a guillotine around your neck. It, it does seem a bit odd, doesn't it? But that's what the cross symbolizes. It's this horrific method of executing people. And yet, Paul says, this is also the power of God in your life as you believe by faith in terms of what Jesus has done, that he died and rose for you. And so we embrace, if we don't embrace the cross, even with all of its strange contradictions, we are lost. I think it is right that every preacher would say, we preach Christ crucified. An offense to some, a stumbling block to others, foolishness to many. But God does not respond to that. He persists and he says, for those of you that will believe, this is the power of God in your life to transform you. This is the wisdom of God in your life to transform you if you believe this what seems to be foolish message. And I pray if there's someone here that doesn't believe the message of the cross this morning, by the time you leave, you will believe. If you need power in your life, you'll stop looking to yourself. You start looking to the power of Jesus through his cross in your life to transform you. That's the way. And I was thinking about this. Paul really was the best living example, example of someone who had been offended by the cross, by the message of the cross. He, he understood this because he had lived it. Why do I say that? Well, he knew Deuteronomy as a good as member of the Sanhedrin. He, he knew Deuteronomy 21, which said in verse 23, anyone who hangs on a cross is cursed. That's what it says, Deuteronomy. Cursed is he that hangs on the tree. Paul understood that, and it so offended him that people were saying that Jesus had died and it was resurrected and he was Messiah. It so offended him that he went around killing people in the church. You read it in Acts. That's what he did. He knew what it was to be offended by the cross. It had offended him so much so that he killed people who believed the message. And then it says in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, Christ. <laughs> He says, I've got your number. And he appears to him. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul realizes in that moment he's been killing God's people. He realizes this is Jesus before him. And he's radically changed. Come on. That is the power of the message of the cross transforming someone who hated into someone that loved and gave his life completely differently because he had been transformed by this message. Come on. Paul knew it. He knew it. He had lived it. And yet this message was foolishness. When we were younger, we took our boys with us to the Colosseum. The Colosseum is a fascinating place. You can see lots of graffiti. Graffiti is not a new thing. There's 2,000 old graffiti in the Colosseum. You can go see it for yourself. And one of the, the pieces of graffiti in the Colosseum, which just shows the attitude of many people to the gospel, in the, even in those early days, the message of the cross, there's a picture of a crucified figure carved into the stone with the body of a man, 
and the head of a donkey. All right? Crucified figure, body of a man, head of a donkey, and there's a person next to this crucifix worshiping, and the, the, the graffiti says this, Alex Amenos worships his God. Do you get it? This is foolish. Completely. How can Alex Amenos worship this crucified? This is like complete foolishness. It's like the picture of a human being and a donkey together. That's what they thought. Foolishness, this message. That's how they saw the cross. And so let us not um, try and change the message. It was foolishness then. It's still foolishness today. But for those who believe by faith, it is the power of God to transform your life. Let me quote Spurgeon one more time. Spurgeon said this, and I was saying to the staff, this is written in the 1800s, my friends, 150 years ago. People were saying in Spurgeon's time, let's change the message. It'll be so more appealing if we change the message. What does Spurgeon say? Certain men of God tell us that we must change and adapt truth to advance with the age, which means this, that they murder it and they fling its dead body to the dogs, which simply means that a popular lie shall take place of the offensive truth. Spurgeon said that, not me, 150 years ago. Come on. Let's find courage to preach the message, to live the message, to stand on God's truth with compassion, with kindness, but stand on what he says in his word. We preach Christ crucified, foolishness to the, wisdom, the wise, offensive to many, but the power and wisdom of God to those who believe. Verse 29. I love this part. Paul's always a little bit naughty. He's a naughty man, Paul. So he says this in verse 26. He's showing them that the wisdom of God is also evidenced in who he chooses. So he says this, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise or not many of you influential, not many of you were noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one might boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is righteousness, our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those, let no one who, who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul is kind of saying to the Corinthians, you know, you think you're very wise and that's why you're fighting with each other because you think your, your, your kind of view is the right one. Let me just ask you, says Paul, look in the mirror. All of you look in the mirror. And how many of you can say that you were wise. Yeah. How many of you can say you were a big deal? How many of you can say you were influential? How many of you can say that you were of noble birth? He says there were some that could say that, but not many. Not many. And I rejoice that I'm in the not many. I'm one of the not many. I'm one of the not many that's not wise uh, in the earthly way. I'm a one of the, the, the not many that's never been rich. I'm one of the not many that was never had influence. I'm not politically connected. I'm none of those things. Paul says, actually, all of you in this church, Corinthians, you're all part of the foolish things that God has chosen. And you and I, 
unless you are of noble birth and very wealthy and incredibly um, worldly-wise. You, you and I are all part of the foolish things that God has chosen to confound the wisdom of this world. That is worth rejoicing about, or don't, don't you think it is? Do you, do you sometimes still think that you are quite special, that you are kind of like, mm, I'm okay, man? You know, when I'm going to heaven, I'm going to, me and God are going to high five, and I'm going to say, God, you did things my way. Like Frank Sinatra, me, you and me, God, we got it right. We, we knew it. We were, we, man, we, were the, we were the real deal, the big cheese. Paul says, no. None of us are like that. Remember Paul, the great Jewish scholar, the great intellect, the one who was the, of the tribe of Benjamin, the one who did everything by the book. He said, I don't boast in any of that. Any of that I considered rubbish for the sake of knowing him. For Paul, that's what it's about, that he could know Christ. He didn't put any confidence in any of those things. He put his confidence ultimately in God and what he had done. So I want to say to you, if you feel foolish, if you feel weak, if you feel overlooked, if you feel like one of the small people, the very ordinary people, rejoice! Because God has chosen you and he's chosen me. The small, ordinary people seemingly foolish people with no influence in the world to shame the wise. And so through our lives, God, people can see that God has done an amazing thing and he transforms the whole world through ordinary people being saved and called and living out their faith. Come on, man, that is such good news. Don't be, come on, clap. The foolish things to shame the wise. You, some of you were too... Um, Afraid to, to applaud, you thought, thought I, can't, I can't be applauding this. Come on, it is good news. God's chosen what seems to be so foolish to show his great wisdom to the world. And so Paul is basically saying, don't think God has chosen you because you are great. God has chosen you because he is great. <laughs> See, I told you Paul was naughty. He's in a very kind way saying, no, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with God. That's why he's chosen you. And then he says, to shame the wise, I've spoken that about a lot. Um, a lot. And I want to finish with this, so that no one should boast before him. In the end, when we stand before God one day, none of us are going to say, you know, God, I had it all figured out. You did it just like I thought you should. No one of us are going to glory in that. What we're going to glory in is the wonder of who God is and what he's done for us. And Paul says, lastly, in verse 30, true wisdom belongs to those who believe. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for you wisdom from God, that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That's not about getting smart. It's about receiving what God has given us in the person of Jesus. And he unpacks that and he says, this wisdom is, is reflected in three ways. Through us having a righteousness, us being sanctified, and us being redeemed. Those are the three ways that God works out his wisdom for all of those that are in Christ Jesus. Righteousness means that you have been declared right with God because of your faith in Jesus. It means that. So you are always eternally right before him 
because of what Jesus has done for you. It also means this, that you have an imputed righteousness that God reckons to be true in your life. What does that mean? It means that everything is, that is attributed to the character of Jesus is reckoned to be true for you. Have you thought about that? So when God looks at you, Derek, he sees Jesus on Derek's life. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't see Derek's problems, his weaknesses. No, Derek is right before God, and God has imputed the righteousness of Jesus on his life. And when God looks at Derek or God looks at any of you, he sees Jesus upon your life. That's what imputed righteousness means. Your sin is gone. As far as the east is from the west, and God sees his righteousness upon you. That's what it means. God has reckoned us to be right with him. He is our Father, and we are right with Him. It also means that holiness, how you behave as a Christian, being called to be salt and light in the world and separate from, God, from the world, as you grow in holiness in your life, it doesn't grow in your life as you look to yourself, as you try really hard. No, no, it, it grows in your life as you look to Jesus as you focus on Him, as you worship Him, He starts to transform you and you become more and more like Him. That's what Paul is saying. You don't focus on yourself. You focus on Jesus. And so you don't overcome sin in your life by people telling you and saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't dress like that. Don't, 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 don't. That doesn't transform anybody. This makes you feel guilty. Anyone been there? So what I'm saying to you is, what Paul is saying, what I'm saying to you is, lift up your eyes to Jesus. Love Him. Love Him. Love Him. Love Him. And as you love Him and you worship Him, you know what? You want to start doing the right thing. As you love Him and worship Him, it transforms the desires of your heart, and you start to want to do the right thing. Me saying to you, have a devotion every week, read your Bible. How many of, honestly, how, how many of you are motivated by that? I guarantee zero. None. I can encourage you, but what, what motivates you when you have a revelation inside of your heart? Oh, Jesus, you're so good. I want to spend some time with you. I want to read about you and your word. I want, I, want to, I want you to transform me and help me to live my life in a way that honors you. That's what transforms you. Not the preacher saying, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, dress like this, don't drink that, eat that, don't eat that. Paul says that is all done. For the sake of knowing Jesus, when you know Jesus and you love him, you start to want to do the right thing from the inside out. That's what it means to live by faith. And if you are a young person this morning, I want to say this to you. I wish I had known this when I was young. Because I grew up in church. I was told to do a lot of stuff. In the end, I was exhausted. Can't do all the stuff, man. Come to the prayer meeting. Come to this. Go to that. Eat like this. Exercise like that. I had to grow up in the People said that all that stuff. You might think it's a, they did. 
All in the name of Jesus, of course. And some of it was good advice, but it certainly wasn't the gospel. I want to encourage you to love Jesus with all of your heart. Just love Jesus. He will transform you. He will help you. He will give you the right things to aim at in your life if you just love him with all of your heart. He is the wisdom of God. He is your justification. He is your sanctification. Look to him. If you want to live a holy life, look to Jesus. And it says here, he is your redemption. What does that mean? Well, unfortunately, Paul knew about slavery. This is a, this is a, a reference to slavery. That it's the idea that you have been bought, you've been purchased forever into permanent freedom. Yes, please. Come on. You want freedom in your life? Well, Jesus has bought. He has redeemed you. He has bought you out of death. He's redeemed you, and you are never going back into that, ever. You are free now and always will be as you believe by faith. You are free. That's what Jesus says. He's done for you. He's bought your redemption. The wisdom of God for you is righteousness. It is justification. It is living a holy life. And it is redemption, being brought out of darkness into light. And you never go back. And you are always free. Because whom the Son has set free is free indeed, once and forever, always. Come on. This is such... Not that I'm preaching well, but this is a good message. Come on. All of us need to tell our friends, you want to be free? It's one who can bring you freedom. His name is Jesus. He's bought it for you. All you have to do is believe that he's done it, and you're free. And then lastly, he says, for he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And here again, it's a reference to Jeremiah 9 in the Old Testament to show that God did all of this in a way that ultimately brings glory to him. It's got nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with him so that he gets glory that none of us can boast and say it was us. But all of us can say it's him. It's his kingdom. It's his love. It's him that's transformed me. Nothing of myself, but only him. Amen. And so... Paul says, this is the thing that transforms the world. Ordinary, ordinary people living out a glorified life. Not because they're clever, not because they're better than anyone else. Simply because of the life of Christ transforming them from the inside out. Amen. This is what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. Foolishness to many. An offense to many, but to the power, those who believe, the power and the wisdom of God. Amen? Amen.